Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 667 with Chef Brad Checky. You know, mise en place can be your oil or your shallots, or but it can also be, you know, your uniform, your shoes, your, you know, getting to work on time, like all of the things that allow great restaurants to be great and allow, you know, and, and really like poor mise en place can also lead to the, the restaurants that aren't so great not making it, you know. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. You got to check out Wisetail, a premier learning management system. Wisetail is a forward-thinking training and communication platform built to engage today's workforce. Wisetail is trusted because it grew up alongside some of the most recognized restaurants in the industry. This has helped them shape their products and its functionality through real-world feedback and rigorous testing. Wisetail can help you scale your training initiatives across all locations while empowering your employees to take control of their learning and their professional growth. To learn more, head over to www.wisetail.com slash unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. And if you use my links, you'll get three months free after signing up for a year contract. Again, that's wisetail.com slash unstoppable. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash unstoppable, and when you run your first payroll you'll get your first three months free again that's gusto.com slash unstoppable were you aware that 89 percent of guests will research a restaurant online before dining out this is why it is so important for you to be mindful of what your online presence is Visit getbento.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your Bento Box website today. Bento Box empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships online. One more time, that is getbento.com slash unstoppable. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Brad Checky. My man, Brad, are you feeling unstoppable today? I am working on it for sure. (laughs) I cannot wait to dive into your story. It's a good one. So raised... Just outside of Sacramento, California, Chef Brad Checky is a graduate of the Culinary Arts Program at American River College and the Culinary Institute of America. He would go on to spend the next seven years working between Sacramento's Mulvaney's and the Grange Restaurant. Next, Checky made the move to Cleveland, Ohio, where he held the executive chef position at urban farmer in the western downtown in 2016 checky made the move back to california where he was recruited by michelin starred soul bar as the chef de cuisine and later as the executive chef where he was able to maintain the michelin star status for the next two years and in 2017 checky joined forces with clay nutting to open cannon which is recognized as Sacramento's or one of Sacramento's best restaurants and just recently got its own Michelin star nod when it was added to the list of Michelin guides, Bibgor Gamond, uh, just 
amazing stuff you got going on. Congratulations on all this, the success. I cannot wait to dive into your story, but let's Thank get that, that motivational, inspirational ball rolling yeah. with the success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? Um, I mean, mise en place. That's, uh, you know, that's in my mind, um, you know, chance favors the prepared mind. So, you know, if you're there prep wise, if you're there mentally, if you're there, you know, with a, with a good game plan for your day, like, you know, there's not a lot that can go wrong and it, and it trickles up from there, you know, from, from the dishwasher level all the way to the, you know, ownership, executive chef level. I love it. All and that. I'm, I'm assuming most of the people listening to the show are pretty passionate about the industry, but for those newcomers, what is mise en place? Define mise, en place, mise, en place mise en place means like everything in its place, but it, it's just a mental, you know, for me, it's, it's, you know, a mental preparedness. It's, it's not just, you know, mise, mise en place can be your oil or your shallots or, but it can also be, you know, your uniform, your shoes, your, you know, getting to work on time, like all of the things that allow great restaurants to be great and allow, you know, and, and really like poor mise en place can also lead to the, the restaurants that aren't so great. Yeah. Not making it, you know? Yeah. And, you know, mise en place isn't just being organized and neat. I mean, that's what it is. But beyond that, it's, it's not just to look good, right? Right. It's knowing that everything has its place, yep, right? Totally. And when I need something, I don't even need to look. I know where it is. Exactly. And you're, you're, you're leaning into your, your, you're creating a situation where human habit kicks in, right? right? And you lose less energy because yeah. this is so much more efficient. So there's a lot of power in that. Um, thank you for getting into the details. Of course. Um, so where does it start making sense to, to tell your story? I mean, you seem like pretty early on you're passionate about this industry. Yeah. 16 years old is what I saw. I mean, it, it was around that time. I think uh, 2001, 2002, um, I was I just graduated high school. I was going to uh, American River College, kind of jumped in, didn't really have a plan for my life. Um, you Not know, many lo- of us do when right? we're 15, like local, 16 years local old. Local community college. I'd, I'd been into cooking most of my life and, um, you know, had some family kind of that owned restaurants and things. And, um, you know, so I started the program at American River. Uh, they were opening this hotel, the Embassy Suites in Old Sacramento, and, and was able to kind of like finagle a job there. Is this um, when you knew that you were hooked? Like this was your path? or I don't think it was quite yet. Like yeah. at this point, like it was a job. I was 19. Like, you know, it was cool, like getting into the industry and like there was – you know, there was, you know, partying going on. There was like a cool mentality. People like were kind of this pirate camaraderie. You know, camaraderie right? yeah. yeah. That was really appealing to somebody my age. Um, and then from there I, I kind of took, started taking things a little more seriously. Um, I was recruited, recruited. I don't know if that's the right word, but through the school, um, the Selected. American, the, yeah, the American <laughs> culinary federation had like yearly competitions. Okay. And, um, being 19, I qualified for, uh, the youth um, category and, and some of their competitions. And so a team of us went to Las Vegas to compete on the national level um, to kind of, I think nowadays it would be kind of like the equivalent to like the youngsters version of the Boku store. Um, and, and so we went to compete. Um, we did relatively well, did not, you know, get selected to go to Germany and compete internationally, but um, through that process met some other chefs and, you know, looking to kind of like hire people or take on apprentices and things like that. And so I think from that moment, I was willing to give it a shot. I was also excited to like leave, yeah. you know, move out of my parents' house. Right. And, and so um, I ended up, uh, four of us were offered apprenticeships at the Broadmoor in Colorado Springs. And this is what, you're 17, 16 years I'm old? Like, no, like 19. Oh, okay, I was going to say. Yeah. All right. Um, so yeah, so my parents were quite comfortable with me leaving, but they were also like, what, you know, he's got to go some do something. So. Um, so I, I arranged it with the school and was able to like kind of continue my college credit and, and, um, I was at the Broadmoor for a little under a year. Um, and it was one of those environments that like, 
I think that everybody hears about as far as like kind of an old school brigade led kitchen, a lot of yelling, a lot of like, you know, intense pressure, a lot of 2005, 2004, uh, 2002, 2003. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So just Uh, while we're starting to come out of that culture of the industry, right? Where this is like the beginning of things starting to change. It was definitely, yeah, it was, it was, um, kind of that you're starting to see those, those things changes. And these are older kitchens. You know, we're talking about chefs and chefs of cuisines and outlets is a, $300 $300 million a year operation. That resort is huge, right? And yeah. so um, so I was in different restaurants and bakeries and butcher shops and over the course of my apprenticeship and um, definitely kind of developed this... Well-rounded, yeah. Like, interesting livelihood of fear coupled with passion, coupled with camaraderie. And, like, it was very, you know, regimented. Where was the fear coming from? Um, I just... I was 19 and I didn't have a ton of experience and I, I wanted to... Um, do the best I could, but like here we are coming down on big numbers, you know, getting 200 on the books for the night and the other line cooks are kind of poking at me and, you know, like I was kind of this just big dumpy kid with no experience, you know, <laughs> like so, so I just, I, I felt o- always stressed about my mise en place and about my day. Was I ready? Was I not ready? You took it like, seriously. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Like, you know, there, it was the first time that I had ever seen a place that had consequences to quality. Yeah. You know, like, here in Sacramento at the time in 2000, like the restaurant scene wasn't, wasn't flourishing. Um, and so like you had a bad day, you had a bad day, like, mm-hmm. especially at like a place like the embassy suites where, you know, they're hotel guests, like they're there, they're kind of a captured audience and, you know, leaving that and going to the Broadmoor, like you start to deal with like five star, five diamond and all of these kind of criteria that really lead to their, so there was pressure on the chefs to kind of execute a quality. Yeah. And then you have a 19 year old kid coming in that like, could potentially be serving, you know, that was, um, you know, those were like Dick Cheney's undisclosed location days post nine yeah. like, and, and so, you know, he, it, that hotel's right at the base of NORAD. So we had a lot of that, like, you know, military political kind of influence coming in, people staying at the hotel. It was, it was built for, you know, security. And so there was a lot of pressure every day for that. You said also you, passion. Is this when you kind of knew that you're like, you're on, you know, you're, you're here for the long haul. Like, yeah, this is it for sure. When did you know? Um, I mean, I can remember one specific night, you know, we had, um, Dick Cheney was dining at the, at the chef's table inside, uh, the Charles court restaurant, at the Broadmoor. And, um, you know, it was in the kitchen and then we had a full reservation book and, you know, and it's that one kind of like night where you knock it out of the park, right? The, the service is busy. You're on top of your museum plus you don't run out of anything. Like your stuff's all hot. The chef gives you, you know, gives you a compliment. Like, nice. you know, it was that moment where I'm like, you know, I get a high five from some of the older guys that work there. Man, that's awesome. You know, they take me back to their like, you know, cause it was like a lot of it was, um, like employee housing. Cause there was a lot of people from all over the world that they would get to come work there. Yeah. And so like you go back to their employee housing on like 19, they're giving me beer and like, you know, <laughs> it, it, it was, it felt that whole thing just felt real. Yeah. And, and you feel proud of it. Right. It wasn't just, you know, burgers and fries and pizza and, you know, overcooked chicken. It was like a real fine dining restaurant. And like we were doing a good job. Yeah. And you, I just, the, the things I'm pulling out, you mentioned camaraderie to uh, being recognized by the chef and the feel of accomplishment, right? right? These are, these are all things that are tapping into your higher needs. As totally. a human. Those Mas- I always refer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Yeah. But after you have that security and that safety and above that, you need to belong camaraderie, right? right? Like you belong and when you're going through hell with people that, that bond is always so much stronger because totally. you're going through it together yeah. and then to be recognized. I think yeah. that's where passion comes from. Oh yeah, uh, because it's we need to belong. We need to be recognized for being good at something. And right. when we're re- when we we are recognized and rewarded for a job well done, that's like an, a, a a dose of endorphins just rush through totally. your body, and it's addictive. It's the same know? like 
uh, you know, like I casually play golf. You know, you hit a good tee shot and uh, amongst 18 terrible ones, and that one tee shot keeps coming back, right? Yeah. It's like it's, it's those, those attaboys kind of can carry – I always call it like an emotional bank account. Yeah. You know, so we're like you have to make deposits along the way with the people that work for you. But you have to make withdrawals. Mm. You know, there's certain moments in the day where like somebody messes up and you're like, that's wrong. Like yeah. that's wrong. And if you are on somebody all the time and they're wrong all the time, you're going to overdraft, you know, you're going to overdraw that bank account and they're not going to want to work for you. Mm-hmm. So you have to take teaching moments and you have to take, you know, you know, slaps on the back and you have to take attaboys and you have to take all of those things to kind of like, you know, keep your cooks with you yeah and you owe it to them because we our skills are relative to what we know and we might be really good at something but we don't know that we're really good at something until we're recognized or somebody points it out so if you recognize somebody has skill you make sure you let them know because they won't know otherwise and you might help them become passionate yeah you know it's it's so important um is it worth spending any more time here or should we move on to the next experience i think we move on I, i i came back to sacramento um you know it was kind of one of those things the first time away from home like you know, I had my buddies and I had like all the people that I knew growing up and like I, I missed home a little bit. I had I'd had a girlfriend that we moved out to Colorado together. We were both in the industry and she went on to, you know, other things and I went back home and um and, and so at that moment I went back to the embassy suites for a minute. You know, I, I got a job working at a at a kind of a nightclub and it was it wasn't you know, go to go from doing something like that to going like to this nightclub I think was like a, and it was a, a reason to kind of look at the partying atmosphere. You know, I was turning 21 and like that part of it kind of like get just, it out of your system. Yeah, totally. Right. <laughs> and like, so you're looking at this new restaurant opening, you know, um, you know, not to say any names, but this was 2004 there, you know, the Kings were like winning all these games. And one of the players had opened up this nightclub and, you know, I got a job as a sous chef there and, you know, it, but it wasn't fulfilling. It was, Why not? It just, the food was all kind of mundane. Um, you know, it was about the party atmosphere. It wasn't about the quality of the cuisine. So for me, it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling. You know? So I'd what was there. missing? What would I it have think, needed what, to be present to, to not feel like it was kind I, of a, a I think waste. it was the, the guests, right? The guests weren't there to eat. Mm. They were there to party. Mm-hmm. And they were there to dance. You're a byproduct. You're, you're an yeah, afterthought. I'm, I'm just there if they get too drunk and hungry. And it's yeah. like, you know, that. And they don't care what they're eating. Yeah. And so for me, it wasn't. And then I, I got injured in that time, like not on the job, but like outside of work. And, and so I broke my leg and I ended up packing up and moving to Bar Harbor, Maine. Oh, man. <laughs> and, you know, me and my two best friends got a job in a little pizza joint um, out in Maine. And, you know, I tossed pizzas for a summer and like loved it. Awesome. You know, because it was it was everything I wanted. I was getting like the pizza place was awesome. It was kind of one of those places in New England that like people flock to from all over. Right? Mm-hmm. They go to their vacation every year in Bar Harbor and. And they would go to Rosalie's and, and they, they made sure that they were there once on their trip every time they went, right? And so I, I was like, you know, tossing pizzas and it was like a hand toss to order, you know, out on display, like old kind of mom and pop place. And so you're getting uh, that recognition. Yeah, right? yeah. we're like slinging like 500 pizzas a night, <laughs> you know, and it was just, it was awesome, right? And then we were making good money. We were living in employee housing. Like, you know, I was with my best friends that who, you know, are not in the industry now and what that was their only industry job ever. And, um, you know, we saved enough money to move to, to Europe. Oh, damn. Um, where so, was this in your bio? <laughs> well, I mean, these are kind of things that like they yeah. were, they were non, you know, they were huge influences in my life, mm. but they were not like professional mm-hmm. 
things, right? Like, you know, I to put a you know so much room on a bio to put like I worked in like a mom and pop pizza place, but like <laughs> yeah. you know those things as far as mise en place and you know speed and efficiency and effectiveness and like all those. Must things, been a rock star. There. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like I loved it. Yeah. So you went to Europe. What was the intention behind that trip? Just to Just explore, pack, learn, pack, or explore, yeah. taste food? Like you know, where were you going? Um, we spent quite a bit of time in base of operations. One of my buddies has a family in in Belgium, just side outside Antwerp. So we spent a lot of time there and then use that as a base to just kind of go to Spain and Italy. And eat. we spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe while we were working at the pizza place. There was a lot of Eastern European like med students that oh, would go work cool. there for the summer. So like we would go party with them or, you know, stay with them for a couple of weeks. And and it was it was great. Like I, I think it's so important uh, for young professionals uh, to get out and travel and to yeah. get experience, to, to get that breath of just this is what the industry is like and this is what totally. it can be like in different verticals. Uh, what advice do you have for somebody to uh, be able to set themselves up to be able to travel? Uh, how did you how were you able to do it? You know, like, honestly, it was a, a moment in time where my buddy was like, hey, my uncle owns this pizza place. Like, you want to go? I'm like, yeah, let's go. Yeah. We'll figure it out. We'll save money. And, and we did. We honestly, like, didn't have a penny when we moved there. Uh, were you in debt? Because you went to two culinary schools up to this point, right? Well, so American River College, at this point, no, I had not oh, gone you to the CIA okay, yet. Gotcha, gotcha. So at American River, was a community school. So mm-hmm. it was like, you know, whatever, 10 bucks a unit. Um, my parents were helping pay for that. And, like, I was kind of, like, involved in the school, but... I was able to take time to go away and come back and, and kind yeah. of in and out. Um, so then coming back from Europe, I was like jazzed, mm. right? Like I've seen all this culture and all this like, you know, old world food. And even like, you know, when you're on a shoestring budget backpack through Europe, like you can still get, you know, great pastries yeah. or great wine or great whatever, you know, in a plastic water bottle. <laughs> yeah. um, and so coming back, you know, like I landed back in Sacramento, um, and I got a job with this catering company. Real quick, I'm curious about something. Do you think that if you were ha- uh, to, say, go to CIA and then have the desire to travel, do you think you would have been able to pull it off? Would, no. would your, You wouldn't have been able no. to pull it off. Why not? That's expensive. Yeah. And I think that's the point that I'm trying to make. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of people have aspiration to go to the best culinary school. And there's a lot of pressure on young people to go to college straight out of high school, yeah. like immediately out of high school. Don't do it. Man. Like, oh, go totally. learn, figure Especially out the industry like, you love, you know, right? And travel. Like that one yeah. is, is rough, you know, like, I, and that's what happened. Um, I came back from Europe. I got a good job with a great company and found some people that I really latched onto. We're friends to this day. Yeah. And uh, um, a guy named Chris Jackson um, and a guy named Jake DePue, my chef and sous chef. And it was the three of us kind of like beating off each other. And it was just, it was just us. And that's it was, awesome. it was great. And at the time I was dating a girl who is now my wife. And uh, she broke my heart oh. right in half. Man. <laughs> Looks like she put the pieces back yeah, together. Yeah, she right? did. It took her a little while, but uh, we, got, we got there. Okay. Um, and so she you know, broke my heart, moved to wherever she was, Argentina You still or give Germany. her shit about that all the time. All the time. I yeah. I mean, and, uh, and so then I was like, well, what am I going to do? I, I, I want to be taken seriously. I want to be the best that I can be. At this point, like I'm passionate. I have some skill. But I look back on those days and now and I'm like, what was I thinking like why would i ever come up with that idea like that food was you know like i'm like raspberry vinaigrette and craisins and blue cheese right like it's, it's you know no not no offense to anybody who does that but like this was i was not reinventing the wheel at the time so um you know we i went i decided that like it was time to go right mm-hmm. and 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 so i took out the loans and i was on my own i was 23 24 years old and i needed somebody to validate me mm-hmm. right and that that to not necessarily about like what they were going to teach me, it was that that they were going to help 
validate me and place me in the places that I wanted to be. Any key mentors that had a real influence on you while I think in that moment, CIA. like, you know, like, um, you know, like there's a uh, Michael Pardis who like you, you read about him in all the like Michael Rollman books, right? He was yeah. my cuisines of Asia instructor, you know, and he's one of those guys that's like particular and like not mean, but like serious and yeah. taking it all very serious. And that was some direct direct. Right. Yeah. And that was something that like he was able to kind of see the difference between kids out of high school mm. whose parents may be paying for this, who aren't taking it seriously. And then the people who were. And that's the other variable about waiting three or four years right. to go to the CIA after getting that experience is you're going to spend, I mean, you grow up a lot, especially totally. men. Like our frontal lobe doesn't fully develop until we're 26, <laughs> right. you know? So your rationality, you know, you, you, you're so much more matured to, and you make the best out of that time. And you recognize yeah. the value of the network that's at your disposal. And I think young people just don't see it. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the one thing about that school is like, it is one, you know, and, and Greystone has since like opened up their AOS program, but like. I went to Hyde Park and in New York. And so the one thing about that place is it is the best cooking facility on the planet, probably. Like it's, you know, Hogwarts. It's it's all <laughs> it's all the things that like you look for with from the library to the teachers to the you know facilities to the immersion of it. Like it's great. And if you're not getting enough out of it, you're paying way too much money. Yeah. And so for me I was able to to use that facility to my own advantage and achieve my own agenda um you know and but i watched people kind of squander that yeah. chance you yeah know? so you, you were talking about this uh professor his name ex- escaped my mind michael partis michael yeah. partis and he said that you said that he recognized those who were in it for like you know because they have to go to college and right. it's time to grow up and those were like really taking it seriously not just going through the motions right. but they're there intentionally yeah that's where you left off before i interrupted you what was your train of thought so, you know, so that like i was kind of already there mm. you know like I, in the way that the cia works is that they have like blocks and you're with the same group your whole time there and and so you kind of develop this team atmosphere and you lean on one another like a true brigade to kind of like execute and you know you take the good with the bad mm. and you become a leader in the group or you don't and you know, I think that that is where chefs end up, ultimately end up falling in their professional careers. Anyway, you're either a leader or you're not. Mm. And so, you know, he was able to recognize that in me and some other people in the class. And, and you know, what I think, made you a leader? Paint that picture of what made you a leader. What were you doing? What I was were, older. You yeah. You know, so I was I was definitely older. I was experienced. I wasn't uncomfortable with like the kitchen environment, the, you know, behind or hot or this or that. Like I was able to kind of figure those things out. I had a base set of, of kind of knowledge of like certain technique. Um, and then finding out the hows and the whys was really interesting to me. So I was able to ask the right questions mm. and, you know, and do the right extracurriculars and, um, cause I was into it, right. Yeah. I was there for that reason. <laughs> we're only, we're 20 minutes into this conversation. We're only at your culinary experience, <laughs> like your culinary education, which is fine by me, but this might go a little more than an hour. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm cool? good. Yeah. All right. As long as you're cool, I'm cool. So, um, when did you, so you, were you going back and forth? Didn't you take some time off from the CIA to go help open a restaurant? And then you no. So, your- um, you have your externship. Yep. So I did my externship, um, for Bradley Ogden at the Lark Creek Inn in, in Larkspur, um, which is since closed. And, um, and I spent some time working with the Ogden, with the Lark Creek restaurant group, um, because I, it was, it was pretty impactful on my life. And that was one of those situations where like, here was like a chef who had made something of not just a restaurant, but of like an entire restaurant group and, and a career. And like, and I was really, you know, and that he had, 
opened a restaurant in Sacramento and Roseville uh, before I went to school and I knew people that worked for him. And so I, it was kind of like I was, I was into the style of food. It was just very much just like, you know, the, the California cuisine of the nineties, right? This Jeremiah tower, Bradley Ogden, Alice waters, like, you know, those kinds of, um, cooking, you mm-hmm. know, like not quite to where we are with like farm to fork or farm to table now, but like, it was kind of this like matter of circumstance. These people were getting things locally because that's what was there. Mm. And um, so I, I grew to appreciate that in, in a way that was like a very like American cuisine, right? He he cooked with a very American sense of palate and very American sense of, of quality. Um, you know, I think some of those other chefs may have a little more like Franco Mediterranean type style, but um, I, it's, it spoke to me. Okay. And, and so I spent some time and then I went back to school. Um, and graduated and um, came back with no idea. Like, I could have gone back to work for them. Um, I, I was missing home a little I mean, bit. This time you're 22, 23 years old. You're still a young yeah, guy. Yeah, 23, 24, yeah. something like that. I think this was 2006. Okay. Um, and so I'm, I'm you know, kind of wanting to come home. I missed home a little bit. And uh, at that time, there were some restaurants opening, like some new restaurants that were exciting. And um, and so Mulvaney's building alone, Patrick Mulvaney had just started to open, um, his restaurant and he was doing a very similar thing to what Bradley Ogden was doing. So is that what was appealing to you? The, yeah. the style of food? Cause for me, I was like leaving and my mom sends me this article and it fit. Somebody wanted you to come back home. Right. Right. Totally. <laughs> um, but it fit what I wanted to do. Yeah. It was my style. It was my, you know, and, and working for Patrick was you know, he was, he's one of those people that's like, he's intense and yeah. he owns his own restaurant and he, you know, is looking at the bottom line and he's looking at the quality and he's looking at, you know, his, you know, for lack of a better term, like political status in the, in the community, right? Like, where do you fall as far as like popularity goes and what, you know, are your reviews and your connections and your networking? Is that all yeah. working? And and for me, I landed in a great spot at a great time. And you came on when they were opening the restaurant, yeah. right? So yeah. you got to experience that process of opening. Right. What, what was that? Was the first time you opened a restaurant, right? Well, or? the Embassy Suites open. I was on that opening okay. team, but I was, you know. So this time uh, around with the opening, how are you looking at it differently? How are you getting more involved? Um, well, I was working lunch, and I was kind of the only lunch um, cook. There was one other guy, um, and and we started cooking lunch together. He ended up, you know, moving to dinners, and I so I kind of stuck with this lunch thing um, by myself, and it just became. It was it was busy busy restaurant. They have a busy catering company. There was a busy environment. The the restaurant itself is kind of like very eclectic. So it's kind of thrown together. It's not like this professional big kitchen. It's it's a small neighborhood restaurant kitchen. And so um, I was able to kind of be left a little bit autonomous, but at the same time like taking direction from Patrick and you know kind of coupling that with like sharing mise en place with the dinner crew and things like that so it was a really interesting time for any me any key lessons about opening a restaurant during this time things you didn't realize or maybe it was just too early in your career i mean i've since opened 10 uh, yeah so yeah maybe, uh, we'll, maybe we'll hold off on that question <laughs> yeah uh <laughs> it, it was at the time you know you're just like at that time for me it was like i'm gonna make some money here yeah because like i'm working overtime i'm working you know it, it's every every i remember that first december we were open like the chef quit and you know, we came in one day and they were like, uh, or no, I was there and I called Patrick on the phone. I go, yeah, dude, quit. Like, he's like, all right, well, we got <laughs> offsite for this many tonight. We got offsite for this many this afternoon. You got lunch, dinner, blah, blah, blah. You guys like get to work. So, awesome. you know, we were able to kind of pull it off and, and then, 
that you know make some good money in that first holiday season. Yeah, you, you mentioned something else that really kind of stood out to me. I want to draw some light on it: uh, the political status. Um, it's almost unfortunate how much success in this industry has to do with how popular you are. Yeah, <laughs> it does, right? But like, it's the, true. But people it, want to be associated with the cool kids. Yeah. They want to go to where the cool kids are, right? Yeah. Um, what did you learn about political status and how to climb that ladder? I think well. So in that time, it was like, you, you see, this is a political town, first of all. So like you see Patrick kind of talking to business people and politicians and things like that. And it became Sacramento is the capital of California, right? which is why it's a political town. Yeah, exactly. For those, uh, not aware. <laughs> Keep going. And so, you know, it, to see that standing and then the, to see how busy it became, right? And build, it built off of that. And that, you know, 2006 is the height of like the food network and all these iron chef and all these other things, the the advent of the the smartphone. So people are sharing food pictures all over the place. Right. And, and so I saw that happen and I was like, I kind of figured it out. I was like, he, cause it's easy to resent a chef when they're not in the kitchen. You know, it's very easy to have that mentality. Like they don't work. Mm. Um, but at that time, that's when that, and not that Patrick wasn't Patrick was working his ass off, but like, you know, it was to see that part of the business be just as important as the other part. And really, you're kind of like pitching, you're throwing the pitch to your kitchen staff to hit it out of the park, right? So, like, you know, Patrick was telling these people how good his restaurant was, and then they have to come in and you have to execute. So, like, yeah. he has to back up what he's saying. Um, and so, for me, like, I, I, I saw that and I was like, I got it. You know, I wasn't resentful about it. I just, I understood what was happening and I was like, okay, file that away for later. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said about having presence in your restaurant and to be yeah. there. And, uh, you know, nobody's going to work harder in your restaurant than you're going to work in, in your restaurant. So right. I get that. But at the same time, you can't grow your business if you're constantly working. Yeah, in if you're it. working if, the line. Yeah. You know, if you're, if you're, yeah, exactly. If you're working the line, you're not going to be out there. You're not going to be able to work on your business. Yeah. Um, that's what major, he was doing. You know, he is and was the major D of that restaurant. Mm-hmm. From the day it opened till now. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, people come in there to see him and he visits tables and he's, you know, making sure that there are qualities there. He's sending them out a little taste of dessert wine or a little, you know, shot of red breast in his case. And like, you know, all these things. And I, I kind of see that and I'm like, you know, at the time and I'm like, okay, I, I get this. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I had an opportunity to work in this little tiny bistro in Fair Oaks. And so as a young 25 year old chef who's like looking to make some, you know, some of my own creative decisions. I'm like, all right, cool. I'm going to take this job. It's like, um, so, and, and then I found myself in this area where I'm not popular. We're still at Mulvaney's. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah. Okay. So this is, Sorry. so this is kind of in conjunction. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, I get my buddy who's opening this restaurant and he's like, Hey, can you come work nights over here and help be the chef de cuisine? It was just me. And then I'm working days at Mulvaney's and I'm seeing, at one hand, I'm at the top of the, you know, at that time, you know, the top of the restaurant community in Sacramento working in the best restaurant in town. And then I'm going at night to like the suburbs <laughs> and I'm trying to do good food and I'm just by myself and we're doing nights of zero covers. And, and so like, I'm like, I'm not popular, right? Like I'm not drawing, there's not enough PR behind mm-hmm. this whole engine. And so that's when I kind of realized that like, that's, that's important. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I end up leaving Mulvaney's to go over there full time to kind of do that. And okay. I'm there maybe like six months. And um, you're there to, to get popular. Well, I'm there to just kind of like do my to own build thing, your name, right? To build to get my a own reputation. And to be creative yeah. and like do my own food. But I'm 25. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you ask any chef, you know, the 25 year old version of themselves, well, not any chef, but most chefs, and the 25 year old version of themselves is, you know, 
their food cost is high and their labor cost is high and they're you know they're they're throwing stuff in the garbage they're not forecasting they're not scheduling they're not doing all the things that are important to making a successful business so the place closed and and I will take some credit for running into the ground, but <laughs> these are the lessons we learn the hard way. Totally, you know? like and you don't know until you know, yeah. uh, until you have you know you know fallen hard on your face and you you have to get back. The only thing you can do is get back up. Yeah. But um, we're, we've all been there, you know. Totally. Um, so six months. What, what was the next move? Grinch. Okay. And so what was going through your mind? Like what, I'm terrified. What, what, you terrified? You know, what, like I went from being like this chef doing doing my own thing but i was by myself so it wasn't like i was like running a kitchen yeah. where were you emotionally at this time your, your ego was a little burnt um, definitely bruised yeah yeah so um, I, I definitely kind of was like and now, now i'm going to look for a line cook position and so i'd gone from mulvaney's kind of running my own lunch thing and then i met this little bistro and like i'm i'm feeling pretty good about myself feeling pretty good about my creativity and then i'm i'm looking for a line cook job so what was your, the strategy there? Did you just want to like get money coming in? Do you were you just trying to like money was important? Yeah. I looked uh, so I, I heard about this hotel opening, and they're bringing in this guy from Atlanta who kind of was really into this farm to table cooking, and like um, they were going to open this you know Sacramento's hotel, right? And I'm like, okay, cool. There's an opportunity. Hotels you can generally make a little more money. Yep. Um, I had enough experience to kind of hopefully get in at the supervisor level, and um, so I get a job. I, I end up landing a job. I get a nice recommendation from Patrick, and um, I'm able to kind of land there. And I think we weren't even open yet, and I was promoted to sous chef. And it's one of those things. It's just hard work, right? I bust yeah. my ass. I'm packing boxes. And well, that's another thought that in the back of my mind. Uh, it's it's great if you have aspirations to open a restaurant. Go to work with a restaurant group, or go to to work at a hotel. So go be a part of openings, right? Because Openings are a totally different piece than oh running a restaurant, right? It's and the other variable, if you get on early, um, fast promotion. Some people totally. don't work out, right? Some people are I high. Mean, like, like you can climb the ladder quick. And with that's the story of my career. Yeah, I mean that it, Grange. To this day, is I feel like when I walk in that building, like it's still mine. Like I feel like I was, you know, you know, um, the kind of like the the line cook position spewing into a sous chef position. And then people started leaving, right? Sous chefs would leave, and then the chef de cuisine left, and then I was promoted to the chef de cuisine, and then the executive chef left, and I was kind of running the deal by myself. Well, not by myself, but with sous chefs and mm-hmm. kind of a temporary Lead executive position. chef role. Yeah. I, was, I was in conjunction with that, applying for the executive chef job at 27. Yeah. And, and so I was really, like, immature about it. Those, those were the days in my life where I was, like, the screamer yeah and the belittler and the you know like i couldn't i couldn't figure out for the life of me like why people weren't following me did you listen to oliver ridgeway's episode i mean i haven't listened to it yet no <laughs> does he talk about he me? does talk about it just a little bit he says he's, <laughs> he has a lot of great things to say about you but in the episode um and i'll link to it in the show notes uh he talks about his transition over to the granger yeah. and uh, he came on um you were like Technically, I mean, a lot of people would, you may have assumed that you were going to get the executive chef role, uh, (laughs) but they brought in um, Oliver Ridgeway, right? And um, he talked a little bit about the dynamic of your relationship when he first came on. Yeah. That might have been a little bit of a tension there. For sure. Yeah. I mean, 100%. Like, (laughs) I wanted that job so bad. Yeah. And, like, it was, that restaurant was mine. Like, I, I really, you know, I didn't own it, but, like, I felt that everything I did was, like, hitting the plate and like for the first time like i I was working with 
a place that was popular and I was working with like a, a, a certain status in the, in the building. And I was working with like a budget, right? Like a hotel budget. Like I had all the money in the world yeah. to spend. <laughs> and you know, I had sous chefs and I had all the things and like, here I am like, you know, trying to get business too, trying to like figure out how to get the numbers right. So that like they, they hire me for this job. And then Oliver comes in to do his tasting and I'm like, fuck, you know, and, and he did a good job and he was a nice guy. And like, he had this resume come from Rosewood (laughs) and like, you know, I remember like I'm in the parking lot of like the movie theater getting ready to go see the hangover. Oh, the first hangover movie. (laughs) And I get the call from Troy Christian, who is one of my mentors to this day. He's, we end up going to Cleveland together later on in the story, but you know, Troy calls me and he was the F and B director and he's all, you didn't get it. And I just like, I cried. Like I was so, I knew I was 27 years old. I was looking at a six figure payday. Like I'm ready to like get going. Yeah. You've been busting your ass too. You've earned it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Like that was a year almost Mm -hmm. of like Michael Tui was gone. Oliver Ridgeway had yet to be hired and I was running the place and it wasn't sinking. Yeah. And I was like, I got this and it didn't happen. And so at that moment I'm like, all right, what do I do? But here I am making great money. Like there wasn't another place in Sacramento for me to go. And so Oliver and I had a little tension, you know, like there would be things like when you're a new chef coming into a building, like you try to put your foot down and you try to say I'm the boss and you know, who's the alpha male. And I'm very much an alpha type person. Yeah. And so, and you were the leader, you know, you're stepping down. So that's kind of like, you know, it's going to be hard. And we were five years in or Mm. four, not five years, probably like three years in at that point. Yeah. And like a lot of these staff members. So you got tenure too. Yeah. A lot of these staff members have been there since the beginning. Mm. We opened this place together. We went through the trenches together. And so like, you know, Oliver's telling them to do something. They're just kind of like looking over at me to see if it's okay. And I'm like, yeah, I mean like, you know, I remember one specific was like New Year's Eve or something. The pastry chef, you know, wasn't ready. And and Oliver was like came down on her, and I was like, "Don't talk to my people like that." Ooh, and like that's like a really you don't say that to your boss, right? Like, that's not a thing you you do. Was, so, was this something that you said privately or in front of? No, it was private. I think it was okay. pretty private. Or like it would have been worse if it was. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't like I screamed it across the kitchen. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, but I was like, she's trying her best. Like, give her a break. She doesn't know you. Like, and and you know, I think from that moment on, like right around that moment, I don't think it was that specific moment, but like Oliver and I started figuring it out. You know, like, well, yeah, what was that? I'm curious, what, 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 what was the catalyst that helped kind of make things be okay between the two? He, Oliver's a really good leader of people, and I wasn't at that time. Um, you know, I was like in HR all the time, and the union, you know, it's a union house, <laughs> like, the union was like out to get me. And what kind of give me the, the worst HR story you have? Uh, why you're, I don't even know if I should <laughs> say it. I mean, it's out there, there's people that know it, but like, I just I, I threw things at people. Oh, and, like, we all evolved, man, yeah, totally, yeah. right? And I was, I was young, and so yeah. I, um, and I, I'd come close a couple of times. There's like SVPs of food and beverage that work for other companies now that were working for Joie de Vivre at the time that are like, I saved your ass. And I'm like, okay. And there, there wasn't just one of them, right? They all thought they saved my ass. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you probably did then. Um, and Sorry, so, I cut you short. Yeah, keep going. And so Oliver was really good about, he, he kind of saw that in me and that he could use that part of me to help him. And But also, like, he started asking me about Sacramento. Mm. He started letting me show him the farmer's market and introduce him to people. And like he, he included me in running that restaurant day to day rather than just making me his number two and telling me what to do mm. all the time. And I continued to work there for two and a half more years um, as, as his number two. And like, you know, in that time, like he brought me everywhere, you know, every, 
chef event, the first Tower Bridge dinner that we have in Sacramento. It's a big deal. Like he let me, you know, be me. Mm. He let me be out there and he let me, you know, hang out with my friends and he let me like talk to other chefs and like, or oftentimes like, you know, sous chefs and stuff get relegated to like the back clean up and get out of here and the chefs kind of have their wine with the guests and but he brought me out there yeah i mean i, th- I think it's beautiful to i mean the, the reason why it sounds like you didn't get the promotion was because you had to evolve more as a totally. leader oh, as a manager 100%. um and then oliver came in and he had those skills he yeah. was strong in those areas and w- what ways did he help you evolve as a professional what did you learn about him from management and leadership how how did he imprint on you during these two years it was just rallying people around me Mm. you know it was it was making people appreciate me for not just you know like working hard like the physical work was not something that i stopped doing but it was like how do you empower people how do you set them up for success how do you you know i think something i learned from him was like the chef at the end of the day in a, in a restaurant that big or an operation that big is like you're responsible for giving people the tools that they need to succeed. Mm. It's not, it's not at that point, you know, it's not about, can you cut onions faster than anybody else? Can you cook more than, than anybody else? Can you, you know, it's about leadership and it's about like giving people the tools. So like if people walk into the dry storage and there's no fryer oil and they're like, I don't have, fry, I don't have the tools to do my job. You know, he's like, he was a big proponent of like, Give them the tools to do their job. Make sure that our ordering's tight. Make sure that our finances are good. Like, allow people to grow, and and it really stuck with me. You said he rallied people around you. What do you mean by that? Um, he he gave me um, decision making abilities, but he also kind of like held my hand through the process. Right, like I I had become a little rough around the edges, and he he kind of made it. He smoothed out those edges a little bit and he made me approachable to other people. He allowed me to kind of live in a space without, I was so concerned with consequences, you know, like for the longest time, a year I was trying to get this executive chef job. And so I thought that every point over I was on my food cost or every labor point I was over or every bad review on Yelp or whatever, like that I was going to lose this job. And I was so like tight on the consequences so how was how was he rounding how was he smoothing you out how was he rounding off the edges i mean was he was he, was he advocating for you was yeah, he he was at, i mean 100 percent. Okay. you know he was up and and with like higher management you know trying to find me he was championing you yeah like, you know and yeah. that's what you gotta be you, you gotta you gotta you gotta like you said rally around your people you gotta fight for your people you gotta show the your people that you value them yeah. and, and go to bat for them and defend them right totally. and when you when you show that you care for somebody they're going to naturally reciprocate yeah and care for you um and that's it sounds like that's how he won and you that's over. how it was and oliver yeah. is to this day one of my best friends in the yeah. whole world yeah and you mentioned also that he 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 made you a part of it you were his number yeah. two but like he he wasn't dictating to you like right. he made he let you still have that level of influence that you had before he came on right. board totally he didn't take anything away from me he let me he let me be me let me be creative um and and it was something that like you know when i was ready two and a half years later you know, and someone came to offer me the big job. That's a great spot to take a break to thank your sponsors and we'll be right back. Your job as a restaurant owner or manager is to paint a picture of the job done right and to empower your employees with the tools and knowledge they need to excel. This is why you need to check out Wisetail, a premier learning management system trusted by our industry's most recognized names. With Wisetail, quickly scale your training initiatives across all locations, empower your employees to take control of their own learning and and professional growth, foster communication and engagement through their integrated 
automated training and communication tools and ensure long-term scalable success with the help of their best-in-breed client experience team. They'll take you from goal-setting and implementation to ongoing strategy and best practices training to make sure you maximize your ongoing investment in your training and your programs. And if you use my links, you'll get three months free after signing up for a year contract. Again, that's wisetail.com slash unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. All right, we're back. And you're just about to say uh, the big opportunity came. What was the big opportunity? Well, so um, at the time, Troy Christian, who was the food and beverage director and general manager, long time at Grange. Like he was not there on the opening team, but shortly after. And so him and I became very close. And um, he took a job with Sage hospitality and at that time it was a company within sage called sage restaurant group that was doing these kind of like independent high-end marketing like independent restaurants within big box hotels and so you know they had done an urban farmer at the nines hotel in portland where departure is as well as one of the sage restaurant group hotels and you know so he they were getting ready to open the weston in, in downtown cleveland and it was a it was a big project for cleveland they were kind of vying for like the the 2016 um, republican national convention and they were looking to build all of this stuff it was um between stints at Le, you know lebron stints at the cavaliers and so the city was kind of like looking for something and you know they offered me well they didn't offer me the job i had to interview i flew to denver a couple of times i did tastings i did the whole thing and you know and i was looking at like this farm to table steakhouse I, I had developed a name in sacramento doing like cured meats and butchery and charcuterie and um and so the concept spoke to me at the same time like i had experience in hotels but i was young i was 29 and you know i was nervous about the gig it was a 480 room hotel twice more than twice the size of the citizen the 300 seat restaurant more than twice the size of grange i had a starbucks i had all this banquet facility at you know i had like 20,000 square feet of kitchen space and man nine sous chefs and three you know department leaders and this whole thing And, and i was like I was like, yeah, I got, I got this, <laughs> whatever, you know, and like, and so I went up to Portland for three or four months and worked at the Urban Farmer up there, and kind of figured out, like, I had never worked in like a big box hotel before. The Citizen is like, you know, we plated the banquets, you know, to order, and like, so That's I'm crazy. looking at like packing in, you know, banquets for like five, six hundred people, and I'm like, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> well, but you figured I'm it fake, out. Fake it till you make it, right? Yeah. So, so. I was able to kind of figure out, I took a year from the time I got hired until the day we opened the doors, I had a year to like figure out the budgets and figure out the menus and figure out how to do this. And then like, where'd you go to learn how to do this? I mean, you must've been calling people, leading friends, calling people, reading, um, you know, talking to people. What would you read to learn how to do that? Just like, like real, like the pro chef, like, you know, books from the CIA about like garmage and buffets and like, you know, and then like learning and reading like industry kind of magazines about like, you know, not like food and wine, like, you know, buffet monthly or whatever, you know, <laughs> to kind of figure out how yeah. to do these things. And then the steakhouse. No podcast I, back then around no, this stuff. Totally. <laughs> um, you know, and then the steakhouse, I was like, I got that. Yeah. Like I figured I mean, that, that part was easy. Like they had a really good concept. I had, you know, I'd found the right butchers and, you know, we had a 3000 square foot or no 6,000 square foot restaurant that like you know we were bringing in whole animals and we were doing so that part was like i got this and Mm -hmm. i had the right people in place 
the banquet stuff, the room service stuff, the Starbucks, like that stuff was a challenge. And like you were managing just, a Starbucks too. Yeah, oh, that's cool. And uh, and so I, I wouldn't think that because it's a big convention. I wouldn't hotel. think that they would keep the management for a Starbucks in house. I think they would, I would just assume well, that they would a, have somebody. They else. do like a licensing agreement gotcha. in, in hotels. You know, it's it's a licensing agreement. So like. You know, you pay Starbucks a certain amount of money, but then you kind of manage it. You buy their products. You're from, not making any decisions there no. because you're, you're being forced into a mold. So right. you just kind of but you manage sure. the labor yep. and you manage the cost of goods and make sure nobody's stealing. Mm-hmm. And so that was like I, I I was super overwhelmed. You know, and like I was I had <laughs> I like imagine. my bosses. You're quoted as saying this is the most difficult difficult thing you had to do like ever. Yeah, still. You weren't like did I see that you're going home and crying some nights? Oh yeah, hundred yeah. percent. <laughs> Like I remember just not, curling I don't up mean to laugh at you. No, but like curling up next to my wife and I'm just like there till I got there at 6 a.m. I got home at 2 in the morning. Like I spent, you know, that, that night that I remember just sobbing. I'm like, you What know, was going through your mind? I was like, I spent three hours unwrapping glass racks mm. and like organizing them. And like I wanted to do, I wanted to win. Mm. And, and that was. Were you afraid you weren't going to win? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I had these other. You know, my bosses, my corporate level chefs from like the urban farmer, you know, uh, corporate chef, then Sage's corporate chef. Like they were all around. This is a big project for Sage at the time. And like they were all there breathing down my neck. Yeah, I don't like, want sure, people. You know, and then there's like task force coming in. And they're kind of like the spies in the, you know, and I'm like just trying to like impress them all. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I worked my tail off and I was there a lot and I was young. So I was like, it didn't, you know, my, we didn't have kids. Like my wife was you know, staying home at that time. So like there was a little bit of forgiveness there, mm. but like it was tough. And, and then, you know, you couple that with like where here we are, like 2013, like Cleveland quite hasn't rebounded from like the recession yet. And like, so the staffing was really difficult. Like I remember firing like 75 people Jeez, in a week. That must be rough because you're trying to hire 150 people at once and they're not passing drug tests or they're not, you know, oh. they have criminal records or whatever. And then you're just calling people in your office. Sorry, didn't work out. You didn't pass. You didn't pass. You didn't pass. And every one of those that goes out, you know, every five of those that goes out, one of them's good and you can't, you know, you don't want to lose them. And, you know, and then you're like, where do I go from here? And you're replacing them with somebody that's like a temp or so like the labor component was. And so that is when like, I was like, all right, cool. I put down my knives. I put down my saute pans, my towels. I pressed, you know, I sent my chef coat to the dry cleaners. I put on dress shoes and I was like, the only way that I'm going to figure this out is to outthink it. I can't, I can't work through this. Mm. You know, I have to, I have to let my department heads and my sous chefs do their jobs and I have to outthink this. So how do you do that? So when you say outthink, you're saying you need to remove yourself from the day to day so you can be at top level management. So you can be delegating and, and looking at whatever you need to look at to figure out how to solve the problem. Right. That's because it takes energy. Yeah, yeah, it takes energy. And like, you know, like Oliver taught me, like you have to give all these people the tools. And Mm -hmm. so if I'm not able to teach my butchers how to make the charcuterie or cut a, you know, whole, whole steer, if I'm not able to get my pastry chef on board and hold her accountable to like having the right recipes and written in a certain way that people can follow and, you know, checks and balances in place for people getting set up and for, you know, not serving like old food or, you know, this was a huge place. And it's like, so, you know, stewarding staff, like how do we get plates from here, this from the third floor to the basement to back and counted. And, you know, like there's spreadsheets and all these things that need to happen in order to achieve those goals. And so once I figured that out, I felt like I started making really big strides towards like 
getting it, mm. you know. And and just around that time, I get a call. It says, "Yeah, Are you interested in coming home?" And I'm like, "Yeah." <laughs> like the winners in but Cleveland. Suck. The, the big lesson to pull from this is you, you got to think through it. I think yeah. maybe is that were those the words you that's, used? I mean, that's it. You got to. You know, how do I outthink? Yeah. How do I outthink? the physical limitations of what I'm capable of doing. Yeah. And if, and if you're putting all of your energy into doing the stuff, uh, if you're you know stuck in the business, right. you, you won't have the, the additional bandwidth you need, the, the additional energy you need to, to, to think, thinking right. takes a lot of energy. Totally. Brains, our brains are massive energy suckers. Yeah. And when we're, you know, it, it takes, we have to, we have to, you know, put that energy aside to be able to think through these things. Well, and, and, and move you, yourself. You allow people to achieve their full potential yeah. too. You know, like you, you, if you provide somebody with all the tools, right, a, a properly written recipe that's measured in the right way, that's not like a pinch of this and a dash of this. It's grams of this and keep going into the this. tools. That would be a great thing if you could just you just mentioned the the, the, the tools, the recipes, right? Yeah. All, what else do we need? What so it's tools? recipes and checklists and you know uh, like at Canon, and we're not quite there yet, but like we well, it takes all, time. All it? of our all of our life every day operates in the Google Drive mm. every day. Mm-hmm. So like. You know, there's a there's a, a a clipboard that has every item, at every station, and like it's color coded to say who does that. If it's the line cook that does it, or the prep cook that does it, or the sous chef that does it, you know that feeds a prep list. The prep list feeds an order guide. The order guide, all of it gets put into the computer so that like I can check it from my phone, and then you can hold all that accountable. Yeah, and then you write recipes that are like written in grams and have appropriate yields, and like then then you're not looking at like having to, and then you taste it once. You know, so you're not having to like, I don't have to make soup because I taste it and there's salt. Like I measured the salt, mm. you know, it's not like season. You're with recreating yourself in these systems and processes and tools to. because you can't be there to keep everything in place. Right. The, you need the, the framework, the, the systems, right? right? And that's what you're creating. Um, awesome stuff. So you get the call. It's time to come back home. Yeah. Um, who was the call from? So, um, Jan Birnbaum, um, was a chef in the Bay Area for a long time. Oh, you know what? I wanted to ask you about somebody before we get into this. You yeah. mentioned his name, and I meant to ask you, uh, Troy. He said he Troy. was a huge, yeah, influence. So, he was the GM at Grange. Grange, Grange, yeah. Grange, thank you. Yeah. So he was, um, you know, like he had left and gone to Sage, and he's the one that kind of was like building me up. He was my partner in crime at moving to Cleveland mm. um, because he. This was a project for him that was like catapulting him to this like gmvp level and so he brought me in and he was able to mentor me you know he was a big influence in like the people part of this how and did the, he influence you um just teaching me how to read a PL, how to like you know really talk to people i mean my time at grange you know he was the guy that so you, you made it to grange without knowing how to read a PL. that i'm mean, not the, like i'm just saying well, like I remember i started there right? as a line cook yeah and so, you know, I didn't need to read a P&L. They didn't teach you that at, at, at uh, yeah, the CIA? Yeah, but, like, it's different. You know, yeah, like, it's different. Until you have numbers there in front of you. That like, means something, yeah, right? Yeah. That, like, you can affect. Like, I know how to read it. Like, I know what the, the, the line items were. But, like, I didn't know how to affect it. Got you. And so Troy helped me through that. So how do you, like, I mean, it's kind of going to be hard to kind of walk, talk us through that. Yeah. Any, like, little details that most people I mean, miss? You, you, there's definitely, like... I think the, the the general ledger, the money that you spend, each item that you spend money on, can adds up. And mm-hmm. so, like, you know, having the GL and the PNL, and really kind of like using what's them the as GL? Tools, the general ledger is a rec- record of everything you spend. Okay. So, you know, if I place a produce order tomorrow, that invoice number is going to end up on the GL, and I'll be able to look at that and be like, okay, cool. Um, I spent 
you know, 500 bucks on produce okay, and 300 bucks on meat and 500 bucks on fish. And then really start to figure out, use those tools to figure out where you're over, where you're under, how you have room to give, how you have room to change your pricing, how you have room to, Got you. you know, increase your portion size or whatever. Right. And, and, and then also like if your labor's over a slow time of year, you can kind of use previous, um, P and L's and to forecast and you can use the GL to say like, Oh, last year when I was on, I spent this much money. And so, you know, you use the all those things to kind of tell you how much you can money track you can it, spend. so yeah. you know if you if you're you know where you stand versus this week, last week, last month, last year. Right. So you know if you're doing better or worse. Right, gotcha. And so Troy taught me a lot of all of that, you know. And and he was also on my team, you know. At the end of the day, like before Oliver, when I was trying to get the job at Grange, you know, Michael Tui when I was his number two, like Troy was always kind of there to like cool me down a little bit or gotcha. to kind of like mentor me into into a space that was like talk ration to you talk, yeah you know? yeah i mean like you know whether i was upset or whether i was n- not upset right maybe i was like riding high and he's just like you gotta you gotta drill this down you yeah. know like you gotta you gotta focus on these things and so you know he's the one that kind of like you need that person in your life to, to, to be honest with you right yeah. you need that person to that can you can have those conversations with and not take it to heart who's yeah. looking out for you who's a different perspective totally right? yeah. and he you know he was always somebody still to this day that like I, I call and bounce ideas off of or you know he calls me and asks me now like you know about certain like things that i can consult on maybe like or you know help him with certain ideas about who these chefs are or the food that they might need to do or concepts and layouts and things like that because i mean i I got a a good amount of experience opening that hotel in cleveland um but i was able to kind of figure out how to parlay that into a full kind of dynamic chef element you know so you got the call come back home thanks thanks for getting into that i appreciate it. jan birnbaum um was was he he was owned a restaurant called catahoula in calistoga um he was a southern guy um, worked for paul perdome then he opened like epic roast house down on the waterfront in san francisco on the embarcadero um and so he started this consulting company and he was he was getting older and so or not consulting recruiting company and so because he had these ties to calistoga where soul bar is uh, brandon sharp was looking for a number two and so i get the call through like a vendor friend and he's like you should give jan a call so I call him and he's like, so he interviews me and I'm like, you know, so is this like an executive chef role? Like I, I don't really want to take a step back. And then the whole Michelin star thing starts presenting itself. You know, like I hadn't really heard of Soul Bar and I had been gone for so long that like, you know, the Michelin world was not something that I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. And so um, the Michelin star thing and I was like, well, let's let's talk through this. And they flew me out. I did a tasting. I talked to Brandon. Um, and at that time, like. Aubert's Resorts had sold their interest in Solage. Solage was going to kind of become this independent hotel company. I saw a lot of opportunity there, so I was like, "Okay, this is worth checking into." So you're, you're. I guess the the thing that I'm taking from this is that when you are print, presented with an opportunity, um, don't be so caught up on titles. Right. Uh, be caught up on where is like what where is this restaurant going? Yeah. Like, where's my and, ceiling? And can I tie myself to this this wagon? Right. right. And just like you did before, um, you. Know, take a job um for the the ex- the experience uh where, where well, was where did this happen i feel like it came up earlier in our so conversation like when i, I left grange that's what it there was. was no opportunity in sacramento i yep. was making money at the top of every independent 
restaurants chef, I was making that much money. So going to another independent restaurant, not in a hotel, was not really it wasn't it was an option, but like it wasn't like uh, you know something I was really interested in doing because the ceiling drops yeah. right. Well, you're, you're moving your you're removing your ego out of it, and you're right. willing to join the forces to do something greater than right. yourself, right? right? And I think that's the takeaway: is like you can be a part of something greater, and if it does turn out to be something greater, then you can uh, tie your brand to that, right? Totally. You can tie your reputation to that. What do we talk about uh, when you had that six month run and nobody knew who you were? Right. Like you're no, like now you're tying your name to a Michelin star. Right. You're, you're developing re- like a, a, a significance, right? right. Uh, it takes time. It takes totally. work to get there, right? And so, yeah, so Brandon offered me the job and um, I, you know, gave notice in Cleveland. And I remember like my wife and I driving out of south out of Cleveland and like the first winter storm is behind us in the rearview mirror. And like, <laughs> you know, we're, we're on our way back home and we land in the Napa Valley, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I end up in this place. You know, I was going into a situation that was really difficult for me because the chef de cuisine I was replacing was still kind of in the fold. He was he was going to be the executive chef at Brandon Sharp's new restaurant. Brandon was the executive chef at Soul Bar. And um, so Gustavo was going to be the chef at Brandon's restaurant. Brandon was staying on as executive chef at Solage. And then, so I was replacing somebody that not only was still in the fold, but somebody who had been there since the beginning. The place had been open 10 years, and he had been there the whole time. And so I was going, and and... and the work staff up there was a lot of like Latino guys, a lot of Mexican guys. And, and, and I, I, you know, I worked in California forever. Like I wasn't a stranger to like working with, with Spanish speaking people, but it was all people that had been there since the beginning. They were yeah. super tight. And they had and a took, Michelin star since 2008, right? Two, yeah. 2008. Yeah. yeah. So I got there and they had just gotten their six. No, no, I, they got their sixth after I started. And then the seventh, was the last one under Brandon, and then the eighth was the one that I was stayed on as the executive chef. What was that like getting the Michelin under your your um, leadership? It was some some level of like accountability that I had never been a part of, a stress that I had never been a part of, and um, some level of accountability that you've never been. I don't know if I'm picking up. So I remember like I start there in December. It's like eight weeks after Michael Bauer comes in, the the critic for the for the Chronicle. And took away a half a star from Solvar. So we were down to two and a half stars. And I remember it, like having the conversation, like how, how bad I felt, you know, cause like here I was like the leader in this restaurant. I was the chef de cuisine of Solvar, And, you know, I was the leader in the restaurant. We lose half a star. And, and so I was like, really kind of like, this is serious. These things matter up here. Um, and so. Because you're you're in in the Napa Valley of the the French Laundry and Bouchon and Meadowood and you know Latoque and all these these Michelin level places that people from all over the world are yeah. coming to eat at and if that doesn't happen, it affects the money. Yeah, and it affects the entire economy, right? Yeah. Um, that area. Um, I can't even imagine that kind of pressure. Um, and so the, the 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 Chronicle thing comes out. We lose a half a star. We end up keeping the Michelin star that year, and so then a couple. About a year later, Michael Bauer comes back, and we get that half star back. So now we're back to the three star level, and in the Chronicle, and we keep the Michelin star that year. And it was like a, it's like a big deal, like yeah. waiting for that call and those, you know, because now they do it a little different. But back then they like you would get a call, yeah. You know, Brandon would get a call, and he'd be waiting, and it'd be like an unknown number on his phone, and like he'd answer it, and then it'd be like, you know, we'd crack the champagne. <laughs> and uh, the year that I had to wait. 
they didn't even call me. What? I found out on Eater. Oh, really? You know, like the list that got published, and I was like, I found out on Eater, and I was like, just bummed that I didn't get like, <laughs> You're waiting for that so phone call. Stressed yeah, too, yeah, yeah. Because um, at the time, like, I was entertaining the idea of moving back here and opening Canon. Okay. And um, Clay had reached out. Clay and I kind of... Before you before you get into that, I'm really curious about something. Uh, a lot of people, young people, when they get into this industry, they have these. A lot of people have these aspirations to win the Michelin stars, the James Beard awards, um, and they don't feel like they are a, a chef or they're significant until they've been garnered with right. the accolades. How did your well, you got the accolade? One of the biggest accolades you can get uh, in the industry, a Michelin star. Um, how did this influence you? Did it happen? Was it? Was it what you wanted it to be, or were you kind of let down after getting the star? Like- um, I for me, it you know as the CDC going into those first two years, like you know it was like call day, right? And yeah. I'm like laying in bed at five a.m. like refresh, 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 like trying to find the list on the Chronicle website or the Eater website or playing next to my wife, and I'm like, this matters, like it matters, like you know, and I don't know that I th- like thought. I mean, maybe I thought it, the thought crossed my mind, but like, I lose my job if we lose a star. Yeah. You know, like, and I don't know that that would have actually been the case, but it definitely would have mattered. Yeah. And, and so like, that is kind of where my headspace was. I wasn't, I was relieved when we got the call. And like, I remember the three years that I was involved in that, like, I remember the day we get the call is like, was the worst services. You know, they were just like sloppy and like, people were kind of like not taking it seriously. Like they had achieved the end oh, of the road. Yeah. And it's not the end of the road, right? It's the start of the next road. Yeah, right. And, and just so recycles, right? You just you just got to start over, and and that part for me is is really exhausting. Yeah, you know, like even and not to get too far ahead, but when Canon got the call for the bib, I I was super excited, a little let down, right? Because you hope for a Michelin star, but Canon's identity is not a Michelin star restaurant. Canon's identity is very much this kind of like entertaining, awesome communal big flavors, casual type restaurant. And, and so we've since kind of settled into that. Now, next year, the day that the Michelin guy comes out, like, am I going to be like wanting a star? Yeah, yeah. I want a star. Well, like, we, we want, you know, like I, I get it. Like you want it. But I guess the point that I'm trying to make is uh, like cash, right? right? We always want to make more money. And when we think when we make more money, life's going to be easier, right. Right? right? And then we realize, no, I still need more. And like yeah. we're, in, we're, 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 insati- we're in, insatiable. insatiable, insatiable. Yeah. Thank you. Um, is it the same with recognition awards like i think so i mean so and i think there is a a game to be played too mm -hmm. right there is this pr game there is this whole thing where like you know do i think that my food is as good as anybody else's sometimes Mm -hmm. you know um do i look at sometimes when like people get accolades and go would i fit into that bucket yeah i probably would like i do i do think that right but there is something you know, you still have to stand up and say, look at me. Yeah. Don't be trying. I guess the point I'm trying to make is don't let yourself be defined by the stars right. and all these things. Cause right. it only happens to a small percentage of people. Totally. And when you get them, you're still the same person yeah. at the end of the day. Exactly. Right. And still, you're like, Oh, well you still have to go out the next yeah, day and exactly. do a good job. Yeah. Right. And so, um, that was, and, and, and part of the reason that I was able to, that I wanted to leave soul bar was to get away from that. Yeah. A little bit, you know, I wanted to come Take back the pressure to off just Sacramento back, yeah. and like do my thing. I was ready to like really put my, self yeah out there so at this point where you're where you're here um your business partner your current business partner had already reached out to you uh clay nutting yeah yeah so clay and i had met um kind of in between that grange you know from the time that oliver got um oliver got hired to 
the point that I left. I was always entertaining. You know, you take take every meeting. Yeah. And so um, I was always kind of entertaining. He he um, and his former business partner owned a couple of restaurants here in town. And, well, they owned one restaurant. They were getting ready to open their second, and they were looking for somebody to kind of run all of them. And um, so I was kind of talking to them about that. It didn't end up working out. I got a better offer to move to Cleveland. And um, that was a little more kind of like what I was looking to do. And um, so we kind of kept in touch, you know, in the very casual sense of like when I came home and I saw him, we would shake hands and say, hey, we weren't close. And um, he had got the opportunity to, he had left um, Lowbrow and and, um, was kind of striking out on his own. And he reached out and he's like, hey, I'm looking for a chef. I was like, are you interested in moving back to Sacramento? And I go, <laughs> well, yeah, if, the, if it's right, right? I need yeah. I need things. I need ownership. I need to be out in front. I need to be, you know, I want to, it's time for me to take my bandwidth and apply it to what I think makes me successful. How well, so how how well did you know Clay at this point? You guys worked together? Did you say you worked together? We had not worked together, okay. no. So we, we kind of, we spent about a year Maybe not a year, quite a year, like a little less than a year, kind of in courtship, okay. meeting, talking about the space, coming, walking through the space, meeting the landlords, meeting the architects, the designers before I even signed on. Yeah. So what, what was it about Clay that in your gut felt right that, you know, you, you knew he would be a good partner? He saw the ability, he saw the value in what I was bringing. Mm-hmm. You know, he was going to let me do my thing and he was going to let me kind of grow and develop kind of my own identity. And what was he um, going to be responsible for? Um, front of the house, but like Clay's a, a, a guy in design. He's, he's somebody that cares a lot about the, you know, the front of the house. He cares a lot about management. He's an entrepreneur. So, you know, him and I getting together was definitely like Canon's not the only thing we want to do. Um, but we got to do this right the mm-hmm. first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we ended up kind of working through the business end of everything and, and ended up becoming 50, 50 partners in the business. And, um, and so, and and the rest is kind of you know history. We were able to get four stars review in the in the B and and the, I mean, I think another thing that's worth kind of discussing too. I mean, at this point, uh, you had all this reputation, uh, all this these accolades to back up your to legitify your ability, right? right. How hard was it getting the funding and the capital? Um, I mean, it's funding's always hard. Yeah, you know, I think I equate restaurants to like a, buying a Ferrari. <laughs> you know, like if you're looking to invest in a restaurant, you know, it's definitely a a thing you do is a status. It's a luxury item. It's not an investment you make to make a ton of money in a, in a restaurant like this. Yeah. You know, I think that restaurant groups and, and other concepts and things like that. And we're, you know, we want to develop things like that, that are really, you know, heavy money makers, but you know, a place like Canon and, and you know, a lot of other fine dining restaurants end up being like a, a place to go for their investors. And so clay clay was clay's a great fundraiser. And, you know, I think people were really excited about what we were going to do. What did you learn from Clay and, and how he raises funds? How does he go about doing it that makes him successful at it? Um, I mean, he asked, he asked a hard question. Right? <laughs> What's like, the hard question? The hard question is, do you have any money for me? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the hardest thing. It's so yeah. uncomfortable, yeah. right, to ask somebody for a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for me, like, I can walk into a room and wow somebody with a plate of food. But, like, How'd you like that? Now give me some money. It's yeah. a is a really hard thing yeah, to do, you yeah. know. And and Clay is really good about kind of like parlaying opportunity and success into into fundraising. Mm. And you know, um, and, and and the entrepreneur side of of what we do, whether it's you know lease agreements or um, you know 
taxes or payroll or you know banking or all this stuff like stuff I know cash flow yeah right? I, cash flow is something that I never even like you, I worked in hotels for twenty years so yeah. like it was just they, there they yeah. have cash flow yeah. right it costs five dollars to turn a hotel room and you make a you know five hundred at Soul Bar you make a thousand bucks a night <laughs> and so like the cash flow was always there you didn't have to worry about it but I get here and it's like oh we're waiting for our credit card transactions to come in from the weekend and it's like what the fuck <laughs> like how a cash flow is something that like you see it but then you're like i said i would see it on a PL and be like oh we have positive cash flow cool like that i just move on to the next thing and look yeah. at my percentages or whatever but what here, was like the first time you saw negative cash flow or not oh heartbreaking <laughs> you know like we were opening a restaurant yeah. like where we were you know we were slightly undercapitalized and and so you run out of money because you, you're looking at like you know you got to bring in a wine inventory Right, that wine inventory costs twenty grand or whatever mm-hmm. it costs you, right? But that's twenty grand you haven't made any money on yet. Yeah. And so it's sitting on your shelf, you're trying to move through it, but like you spent the money mm-hmm. but you haven't recouped your so you could run a you know, twenty two percent wine cost and be living high on the hog, but like <laughs> if you only sold one bottle of yeah. wine yeah. at twenty two percent, you you're not making any money. I got you. So yeah. you know, that was something that you know, um, when Oliver opened Camden, that was like he asked me the same question, like, "What's the one thing?" It's like cash flow. I had no <laughs> idea. I had no idea it was such a thing. Yeah, um, you know, and and so cash is king. Like cash I say, is right? king. you gotta have it in your. You gotta, you gotta be gotta liquid. It, yeah, right? yeah. So um, that was something that like I I learned about very quickly, mm-hmm. and um, we've since been able to become a little more successful in that department. What things do you do? What practices do you leverage to make sure to guarantee that you have cash flow? Aside from putting out a good business stand busy, well, are you putting some aside? Are you, is there always a reserve to make sure you have something there? Uh, for us, it's been more of like, a, you know, we started out undercapitalized. So like we didn't have that money, that extra money to like pad on a slow, which we haven't had a ton of slow weeks. And, and when we first opened, we had zero slow weeks. So we had a lot of money coming in. And so we were able to kind of like, you know, recoup some of our opening costs, whether it be like, you know, you can't figure out where the bill's going for your trash dumpster. Yeah. You know, so like those kind of things, you end up having to work out. So just tracking it, knowing where your money's going. Like cash, managing cash flow is less to do with money coming in and more to do with money going out. Money going out. Uh, When the margins are so small, the littlest things, tracking, knowing where every dollar is going and then plugging those holes. Right. Totally. And, and making sure that you have enough, right? And, mm. you know, once you get to that point of positive cash flow, like, you sleep a little better at night for sure. Yeah. You know, and you, you get you get paid and you get the whole, like, you know, and, and it's hard. It's, yeah. it's definitely, like, keeping the doors of a restaurant open are difficult and yeah. they're they're every day. Yep. You know, you're, you're managing that because it's thousands of dollars you're spending to open the doors and you need thousands of dollars coming in to to keep the doors open yeah i want to redirect the conversation earlier you mentioned when you're opening this restaurant you had to do it right you want to do other projects right but you had to do this one right right take take me through that mentality of why it makes more sense to do one thing right and what happens because of that yeah so uh, you know for we had leveraged a michelin star and we <laughs> you know and like clay had leveraged his previous experiences and so there was a lot of expectations. And if, if we didn't meet those expectations, no one was going to give us another chance. Mm. And so it's like you can be that person that just flashes in the pan and you're gone. And all of a sudden, like, you know, when the next opportunity comes along, like, you don't get the call. And so, you know, for us, you know, we're two people with a 50-50 partnership that, you know, have a dinner-only restaurant. Like, we're not getting rich. Mm-hmm. 
you know, with the profits of this restaurant splitting them down the middle. So it's more built to open more things. But if you don't do this right, then you never get that opportunity. This is what's going to get you the next opportunity. Exactly. Yeah. This is what's going to – if you if you don't do the one thing right, then why are you going to get other opportunities? Right. But if you, if you knock this one out of the park, right. then everyone's going to come – Look, people are going to throw money at you totally. because they want to be tied to your success. Totally. Yeah. And so, you know, we were able to – I ran this place when we opened – like with those systems that we talked about, right? With these, these really strict systems, these, and, and, and I wasn't, I was direct in the, in the way that we opened this restaurant. And it was like, this is the way we're going to do it. This is how we're going to do it day in and day out. And, you know, I'm going to taste and we're going to do tasting trays every day at five o'clock. So this day we put a black cafeteria tray up in the window that has every piece of every food that we have that goes up to the pass and either myself or my sous chefs taste it. And, you know, that's a critical control point in what we do every day because we have six quarts of this puree. We taste that one tablespoon of it, and if it's not right, then the whole batch is wrong, mm-hmm. right? So now we have to go back. And But it's a critical control point. We know where that came from, mm-hmm. and so we can go back and fix it. Um, and so we, I ran this business initially to achieve a four-star review. To you know, At that time, we didn't know Michelin was a thing like in Sacramento. And so it wasn't about, it was about doing the best that we can do, treating every service like it was important. Those were things that I often saw in Sacramento that I didn't, that I I didn't see in Sacramento that I saw at Solvar, for instance, like that every service was the Super Bowl because every service, the Michelin inspector could be on the, or a future investor. Yeah. 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 So, and that, you know, so fast forward to Canon, like that's what it was, right? Every, every, thing could be a future investor mm-hmm. and we had to you know hit yeah and design these recipes and design these dishes in order to be able to execute yeah. them the way that we could so it's like back to out thinking things we have a small restaurant small kitchen you know three three man um cook you know cook team and you know we're closed for lunch so like how do we think this prep schedule through how do we think the you know the execution of these dishes like how much of it are we cooking to order? How much of it are we reheating? Are we like, you know, putting a lot of, so what we do is we end up putting a lot of effort and flavor into sauces and things like that, that we can make in batches mm. and that store well in like deli containers. And then, you know, and then we're able to execute. So, you know, we don't have our style of service is this shareable concept. So we don't have, you know, on your plate, you don't get a steak to, you know, steak, veg and starch. Like you get a steak and that enables us to really motor, Right, we can do 250 covers with three, four You're people. Streamlining processes and, and just yeah, and and really putting it out and, and develop a style of service that you know is fun for people and and so that really enabled us to kind of achieve the goals that we wanted to achieve early on, some national recognition, four star review, you know, and then you know by the time that Michelin came around or by the time that like the next thing comes around, we're we're able, you know, we have these systems in place. Yeah. So now I'm not there all the time yeah you know I, I think a lot of people a lot of entrepreneurs and restaurateurs specifically when they think of growth they think outwards like we need to grow we right. need but growth only comes from inward growth like you, you take that energy that you want to put out and, and redirect it in to do totally. every little thing that you do in your business as good as possible and then when you do that the outward growth comes naturally right because yeah. you get opportunity left and right and I find that my staff is generally happy because the one thing that I rest solely on my shoulders and the shoulders of my sous chefs is to making sure that everybody has what they need. Mm. You know, yes. whether it's a recipe or product 
or an idea of a solution to a problem, right? And so, it, and they're empowered to do so if they need to. It's servant leadership, right and, there. And so they they can think on their feet, but like at the same, they're happy. The worst feeling anybody has, like if you get up in the middle of the night to get a bowl of cereal, and you walk out there and you know someone ate all the cereal, your your instant reaction is that of disappointment. Yeah, it's the same thing for a line cook. If they're looking for heavy cream, and when they go into the walk-in and they're out of it, it's easy to throw your hands and be like, "Oh, I can't do this right." <sighs> you know, so like it has to be there. Yeah, and you have to find these systems that allow it to be there. Yeah. I've loved this conversation. Uh, is there anything we have not discussed up to this point? Any areas that are near and dear to your heart, topics that you want to bring to the surface, anything that you want to get out now is the time before we go to the speed round. Um, I really like cooking mm. and now the food that I make, I'm really proud of because it's they're big, like bold flavors and you hear a lot of this like farm to table talk especially in sacramento this farm to fort capital um for me that's the price of admission and so you know finding global flavors finding interesting textures and interesting you know ingredients and coupling them with what we grow is to me is the way that like you know being a chef should be no matter where you are you can be in sacramento you can be cleveland ohio you can be in south africa for all i care like you know people need to find those things and and really embrace what's around them and I think that that's how you you look at the best restaurants in the world, and that's what they do. Mm. Um, and so I hear a lot about this farm-to-fork thing, and I'm like, you should be doing that. It's not a trend. It's not a trend. You know, it's a movement. It's a reality. Ba- yeah, it's moving back to the way things should be, right? Yeah. Uh, we've gotten so far away from what food is, right. and we pay the consequences. Our health, totally. um, the, the food system is yeah. suffering because of it. The earth is suffering because of it. And it's a movement that everybody has to take. I mean, it should be non-negotiable. It shouldn't right. be a thought like we need to treat food as life. Totally. We need to treat it with, with respect. Um, I've loved this conversation. I'd like to wrap up every free flowing portion of the conversation by asking my guests, um, the, 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 the mission of restaurant unstoppable is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. So let me ask you, how have you transformed? Who are you today? Who are the man you are today versus the man you were, you know, getting into the industry or as a young cook? I mean, I, I, I think that I've matured in a way that like I used to be angry Mm. and I used to like really take on the role of like, I need to do this. I need to be the one that does this, you know? And now I think I've transformed into like a different kind of chef where, you know, I, I, I use my brain and, you know, I treat people with respect and, you know, we're in a different time now than we've ever been in this industry specifically where, you know, it matters who works for you. It matters how much they get paid. It matters, you know, that they're happy. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, of things that I depend on in the future of my business in order to make sure that I I need the people that work for me to be happy. Mm. And if I'm not the right person for that, then they're not going to be happy. So I need to, you know, so I've worked on transforming. Oh man. Awesome stuff. Uh, great conversation. One more quick break to thank our sponsors. And we're going to be back to bust out a quick speed round. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. 
That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you, you've got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto. That's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. Bento Box is more, much, much more than just another restaurant website developer. It is a hospitality platform designed to disrupt third-party services that come between the restaurant and the guest. Bento Box puts the restaurant first and offers tools that drive high-margin revenue directly through the restaurant website. These tools allow you to easily update menus, promote and sell events, share your press and media attention with the world, sell gift cards, take catering orders and much much more in other words bento box puts you in control so that you can focus on what matters most your restaurant bento box is trusted and loved by over 5,000 restaurants worldwide because they empower restaurants to own their presence profits and relationships online sign up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable one more time that is getbento.com slash unstoppable we're back and the first question i have for you is what is your it factor a habit a trait a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success organization what is your biggest weakness um i think kind of aspirations you know Mm -hmm. like uh, trying to do more than i'm ready to do well uh, and I think it's a strength and a weakness because you got to get outside that comfort zone to know if you're ready for it. And you right. won't know what it takes until you've tried. Right. So you got to like put, you know, you got to stick your foot in the water. Right. Um, yeah. so it's, it's a, it's a good and bad thing. I'd, I'd argue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, what's one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process when you're growing your team, what qualities are you looking for? Um, this, uh, how clean are you in your real life? Okay. What's you know what's the backseat of your car look like? So you're looking in their car? Not really. I just ask them though. You know, like yeah. if they if they respond with like, uh, you know, I struggle, yeah. or you know, you ask them questions because for me it's like they're habit forming things, right? Yeah. I'm not the cleanest person in my personal life. You know, the the back seat of my truck has a <laughs> has a bunch of my you know kids clothes and toys and stuff in the back. But when I get to work, I'm like, yeah, it's got to all be right. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a way to be, a way to act, a core value. It's the mantra, mise en place. Yes. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within your four walls, but not common within the industry. Um, the tasting trays. You know, I think that 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 one that one check that critical control point every day. You know, not only does it make sure that the the team is accountable to what's on the tray. But they have to go through and make sure that they have everything. They have to go make sure they see it, you know, that they, they put their eyes and their mouth and their nose and everything and their eyes on every single piece of their mise en place. And I don't think that that happens as much as it should. What is your biggest challenge today? Biggest challenge today is always going to be putting seats or butts in seats. Yeah. How are you combating that challenge? 
Um, just do the best job that you can do. You stay out in the public, you know, like back to our original, yeah. you know, thing staying in the public eye, doing, doing the best job you can doing podcasts, whatever. <laughs> um, but, but you know, the, like you said earlier, the margins in this business are pretty, pretty low. Yeah. And so it's, it's, you want a busy day. You want to be full every night. What's one book to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Ooh. Um, letters to a young chef, Daniel Belude. Biggest lesson from that, that book. Um, just taking the craft seriously. Mm. What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Uh, think. What is one piece of technology you've adopted in your restaurant that's had a huge influence on profitability, communication, anything along those lines? The Google Drive. The Google Drive. I love it. And this is the last question. It's a doozy, but I should preface, and I need to be better about this. I am an affiliate of Google drive so if you guys are not leveraging google and you want to start leveraging google there'll be a link in the show notes please support the show thank you last question if you got the news you'd be leaving this world all the memories of you your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three three things you could leave behind uh for the good of humanity and for your legacy what would those three things be um let's see uh my andouille sausage recipe uh, um, the idea of of uh, family style shareable dining, okay, um, and community. Beautiful. I've loved this conversation. Thank Me you too. so much. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. Who is one independent restaurant operator, uh, somebody you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Um, Brandon Sharp. Um, just when he left the uh, Soul Bar, he opened a restaurant called Hawthorne and Wood back in his native. Uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So he's, uh, he's a, a person that, I mean, you can't help but respect him when just from being in the same room with him. So. Chef Sharp, look, I'm coming after you. I'd love <laughs> to get you on the show. And uh, let the folks know, how can we connect with you, Brad? If we want to come join your team, um, learn from you. You mean one restaurant, you guys are a young company. Like you went to all these other restaurants as they're young, right? Yeah. Opportunity. What's the best way to connect? Um, well, we can definitely, through our website, um, uh, canonysac.com. And, uh, and, you know, through any of our social media, um, at Canon ESAC on uh, both Instagram and Facebook. And this is episode 667. Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 667. I'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as a link to any tools or services recommended. And, uh, again, Brad, just thank you so much for taking the time course, my to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you, Sacramento and San Francisco. Great interviews. Uh, thank you for everybody who took the time to come on the show. Thank you for everybody who took the time to support the show. Uh, people, my listeners, people who are hosting me, people who are connecting me with their network. Man, uh, the support is just overwhelming and so uh, appreciated. And I am now in San Diego. So if you can think of anybody you respect and admire, somebody I need to make a, an example of on the show, please put them on my radar. And I want to connect with you. Uh, let's grab a beer. Let's grab some coffee. Let's 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 talk about how I can make the show better. Let's talk about what you like about the show. Or if you're not in San Diego, but you want to join the community, head over to Facebook and search unstoppable restaurant owners and operators and you'll find the private restaurant unstoppable group join the group join the conversation let's grow this community all right guys that's it for today thank you so much for sticking around this long until next time peace out